News Weekly is an ad-free listener-supported podcast made possible by subscribers like you. Just go to patreon.com slash Shah. that's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H, to support the podcast. Oh, and I'm considering a live News Weekly show in Melbourne and possibly also live-streamed simultaneously in the coming months. Date and venue to be confirmed, so stay tuned. Top Stories of the Week Dictator Dan Dictates No More Also, The Affairs of Home Affairs And They Sees in Office All that and more on Newsweekly Hello and welcome to News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. Dictating is tiring work news now. When it's time, it's time. And with those fateful words, thus ended the reign of Dan the Dictator, ruler of Victoria, marauder of Melbourne and first lord of the lockdown. The man who remained unbending to calls of mercy, bowed only by a flight of damp stairs, then holed himself up in his office, awaiting the rioting opposition which tore down his statues and celebrated in the streets with rapturous enthusiasm. It's incredible he's lasted that long. I think he should have stayed on. He's got a lot to do. I'm absolutely, utterly gobsmacked. Tragedy. It's a tragedy. You liked him? I loved him. Okay, so maybe people aren't reacting quite the way the media wants them to. Stupid Melbournians with their independent thinking, don't they know news channels have ratings to worry about? Yes, in a shock announcement this week, Daniel Andrews resigned as Premier of Victoria, something no one could have predicted but made all the wrong kinds of people happy. A rumour of the resignation was first made public by Eddie Maguire, host of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, one-time CEO of the Nine Network and former president of the Collingwood Footy Club, until he resigned because of how much racism he did towards black and indigenous members of the club. He was speaking at a gathering of footy enthusiasts called the Carbine Club, where people pay $230 per head for a seat at a grand final lunch, so you know it's mostly rich assholes. As the media scrambled to understand Daniel Andrews' legacy, there's still little indication as to why he stepped down so suddenly, with his own justification being vague. You never want to get to a place where you resent this job, this amazing privilege and important opportunity. With his family watching on, Mr Andrews says the decision came after the work started to take a toll. I am worse than a work workaholic. I'd spend... Every waking moment is about the work. And there's only so long you can do that for. So there we go. It's because he was tired and starting to resent the job. Although whether it was exhaustion caused by dodging anti-corruption investigations or resentment caused by vendors demanding to know why they had to carry the massive losses inflicted by his decision to cancel the Commonwealth Games, we'll never know. Andrews was Victoria's longest-serving Labour Premier, winning three elections, each with a larger majority than the previous, all of which means, to anyone who isn't an Australian journalist, that he was still hugely popular in the state, and his decision to lock down Melbourne wasn't seen as controversial. But why let facts get in the way? But he was also divisive, especially over his handling of the pandemic. Controversial lockdown decisions proved divisive. 
He saw Melbourne become the world's most locked down city in the pandemic. And while after the mandates and curfews, there was pushback. We will not comply! We will not comply! See, the thing is, of course, the lockdowns are central to Daniel Andrews' legacy. You don't preside over the longest continuous lockdown in the world without it becoming a thing you're remembered for. But to think it's controversial within Victoria is to not really know or speak to anyone in the state of Victoria. Because majority of the state did return him to office with landslide numbers after the lockdown. The controversy mostly came from other states, which who the fuck cares about? WA? They didn't need to lock down because no one was entering or leaving them because they're WA. No one cares. Queensland? They're so backwards, they still think the pandemic was about the Spanish flu. ACT? South Australia? Tasmania? Name one person from any of those states. You can't. They're not real places. We just put them on the map to confuse tourists. New South Wales is the only real place with lots of criticism for Daniel Andrews, and that was mainly to distract from all the COVID-infected people they kept sending to Melbourne. And if you don't believe me, here's Waleed Ali basically making the same point on The Project, a TV show I'm still unable to understand the point of or purpose of. The clip features him responding to Kate Longbrook, a presenter who willingly agrees to spend several hours a day in the same studio as Dave Hughes, so has questionable judgement. And before COVID, I don't remember it being like that. Maybe it was, but during COVID and post-COVID, not just in Victoria, but particularly in Victoria, there became a sense that the the people were under the boot of the government. But so I just don't think that's the way Victorians in bulk saw it. No, they so, didn't. So and also, I was away for a year yeah. of it. I came back to it and I was like, what's going on was, in this state? It was fascinating. So, well, I'd be the only one on this panel who yeah, lived we through COVID there. as a Victorian. Uh, it was really interesting to watch because you'd watch Sydney people, for example, getting really upset. How can you do this to Victorians? On and, behalf of you guys. Yeah, yeah. And Victorians are sitting there going, that's not how people feel at all. Even though the Herald Sun, for example, was going really hard on it. And I think it was interesting because there, there were a couple of complicated elements to this. One was the decision to lock down and get to zero was kind of in a way taken out of his hands because the other states were all putting up their borders if you had a single case or whatever. Mm. So it kind of forced Victoria... And I'm not saying it's the only reason he wanted to do this, by the way, but kind of forced Victoria in a situation, well, that's kind of what you have to do, or Victorians are going to be locked in to their own state and never get out. But I think the other element of it is that once you've committed to that and the whole population's going along with that, you, maybe it's a survival mechanism, maybe people genuinely believe. Stockholm Syndrome? Well, mm. I don't maybe. think it is Stockholm Syndrome, actually, but I think there was a thing... But of like, what is well, it when a government loves ring of steel and you will have a curfew? What is that? Yeah, but compare that to the attitude in WA. Like, it was... I, there was not a, a leader in the country who didn't benefit from putting up a border at that point. Right? There just wasn't. That's, that's what happens in Australia. And I think what happened is once there was this sense of Victoria's committing to this role, Victorians ended up going, let's do this, and in a weird way, I think, feeling proud of the achievement. Now, you can look back on that and say, well, that's a weird thing to feel proud of or whatever, and vaccines have completely changed our attitude to COVID and all that sort of stuff. But at the time, especially in that first lockdown, I just think... That was the prevailing attitude. So then to see the rest of the country get angry at him for the lockdowns. Daniel Andrews' departure is being celebrated by his critics, which is basically everyone on Sky News, who in a shocking and uncharacteristic show of bias, see him as the breaker of worlds and the Antichrist with a bad back. Here's Peter Credlin admitting to why she and others on the News Corp payroll dislike him so much. His national influence in Labour politics, given a lot of a hard left in agenda in Victoria... Um, was put in place and then often imported into other jurisdictions 
by Labor premiers. So basically, they were worried he was making the rest of Australia as leftist as Melbourne, which would be terrible because then all of Australia might become tolerant and accepting of multiculturalism, diversity, have a majority of yes voters while having good food on offer late into the night. That's probably why there's so much anger against him then on Sky News. I don't think in my lifetime I've seen a worse Premier. My only regret is that he resigned and he wasn't voted out of office or taken away in handcuffs. Despite being, by almost every measure, one of the most disastrous political leaders in our lifetime. Now, there are definitely valid criticisms to be made of Daniel Andrews. Increased powers given to the police, cancelling some much-needed infrastructure projects and then prioritising others despite massive cost blowouts. The confirmation, then cancellation of the Commonwealth Games continues disdain for anti-corruption commissions despite 17 of the 22 members of his original ministry having quit or been sacked over the last nine years. And, of course, the massive state debt of almost $170 billion by 2027 that we haven't even begun to feel. In his defence, as Melbourne heads towards becoming the most populous city in Australia, it needs a lot more development and infrastructure which has to be paid for somehow. The future isn't cheap, especially when you're not the one who has to pay the bill. Still, none of those are the reasons Peter Credlin is angry at Daniel Andrews and wants to see him in handcuffs. Her real complaints... And who can ever forget the Andrews legacy of gender-fluid primary school kids, biological men in women's prisons, an Indigenous treaty commission the Victorians never voted for, drug-injecting rooms, and the all-but-cancellation of Australia Day. So, you know, stuff that never happened, stuff that's been good for the community, and stuff that Peter Credlin personally hates because it means it helps people other than her. Let's take a moment then to be fair to Daniel Andrews. I've already listed some of his bigger failures, not even counting the red shirt scandal because no one actually understands that one and anyone who says they do is lying. But he's also got some victories that might be worth reporting on, including big environmental policies like a ban on fracking, bold plans to transition away from fossil fuels, ending old growth logging, reforms on domestic violence, those safe injecting rooms that all health experts say have been a massive help in fighting drug addiction, voluntary euthanasia laws which allow dying with dignity, sick pay for many casuals, wage theft criminalisation and a massive housing plan. His parliament passed laws to create safe zones around abortion clinics with government support and the following year he apologised on behalf of the state government to men and women convicted under anti-gay laws in the past. And yes, he also oversaw the banning of gay conversion therapy. Under him, women would make up to 50% of the state government for the first time. And yes, he set Victoria on the path to a treaty with Indigenous people. Fair pay, equal opportunities and no discrimination. No wonder Conservatives hate him so much. Andrews, of course, isn't the first hugely popular Labour leader to resign. A few months ago, WA's Premier Mark McGowan also called it quits at the height of his popularity, citing similar reasons of exhaustion. This job is like no other. After seven elections across nearly three decades, now is the right time to step away from the job that I have loved. Therefore, I'll be resigning as Premier and Member for Rockingham. This week will be my final week. It's not a decision I've taken lightly. I've been considering it for quite a while. But the truth is I'm tired, extremely tired. In fact, I'm exhausted. The role of political leadership doesn't stop. It's relentless. 
And of course, before that was the shock resignation of New Zealand's Labour Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who also said she was tired. I am leaving because with such a privileged role comes responsibility. The responsibility to know when you are the right person to lead and also when you are not. I know what this job takes and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. Now, perhaps the reason Labour leaders who manage their countries or states through lockdown successfully are then resigning despite massive popularity is because, as Andis theorise, it's best to leave when on top and the only way is down. If they leave early into their term, they give successors enough time to get out from under their shadows. And maybe it's even, as critics allege, to dodge accountability over incoming scandals. But maybe there's another reason. Maybe the attacks against each of these premiers by right-wing extremists, News Corp pundits and conspiracy theory nutjobs does indeed take a toll. Jacinda Ardern, Mark McGowan and Daniel Andrews all faced lengthy and focused campaigns on social media constantly and even in the real world from time to time with threats on their life. After all, how long can you handle Andrew Bolt, Peter Credlin, their viewership of radicalised parents and a small army of poorly read middle-aged people educated by TikTok and Facebook comment sections? That stuff gets tiring after a while. Maybe once the right realised it couldn't win through elections anymore, it started winning through a war of attrition, applying the Fabian strategy to Labour governments. We'll never know, of course. Daniel Andrews doesn't need to worry about all that anymore. In fact, all he needs to do now is look forward to some well-earned rest and relaxation. Perhaps the kind Mark McGowan is enjoying by getting a job with mining giant BHP, which is reportedly paying McGowan a huge sum of money for a consulting role in between cleaning up all the oil spills it keeps causing. So who is Andrews' replacement? Well, he's upholding an old Australian tradition, one we recently saw Qantas's Alan Joyce practice as well, and is handing over to a female successor, thus confirming that things are indeed a massive mess and they need a woman to do the fix-up job, or at least soak up the blame until a new man can step in to take the credit afterwards. Victoria has its second female premier. As we go to air, the member for Bendigo East, Jacinta Allen, is being sworn in by Governor Margaret Gardner as the 49th leader of the state, following the sudden resignation of Daniel Andrews. Jacinta Allen was elected to Parliament 23 years ago, aged just 25. She's held a variety of portfolios, most recently focused around major infrastructure projects. Last year, she was made Premier Daniel Andrews' deputy, a sure sign she was heir apparent. Sky News has, of course, accepted her appointment to the role with customary calm and consideration. So given her left-faction history... Given the fact she was the protégé of Andrews, is anything going to change in our country's most left-wing state? Now, very unlikely is my tip. As you know, new Victorian Premier is in place. Jacinta Allen is essentially Daniel Andrews 2.0, somebody who's been in the Parliament since their 20s, you know, somebody who really understands normal people. Well, up there today, listing all of the things that she wants to do, she pretty much said it out loud that her dream is that everyone in Victoria ends up in exactly the same place. This used to be called communism, but now it's called democratic socialism. You know, this is someone who boasts being the, the youngest, I think the youngest woman or youngest per, I don't know, whatever at the time, but it's one of these things. The youngest yeah. anything in politics frightens the hell out of me. And that's her story. Here's hoping Jacinta Allen has gotten some rest already, because things are going to get pretty exhausting. 
Texting with Bazulo News Now. In 2017, then-Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull took time out of being utterly ineffectual to announce the creation of a new Department of Home Affairs to be headed by the Immigration Minister Peter Dutton. Dutton's new role would be Minister for Home Affairs and he would be in charge of national security, border control and law enforcement agencies, thus proving that whenever Conservatives say they believe in decreasing government influence, they only really mean it for private companies looking to create monopolies to maximise profit margins. Soon, the ominously named Department of Home Affairs entered into parody by setting up its law enforcement wing called Border Force, which gave every bogan with a hard-on for harassing foreigners a uniform and more authority than they had poorly drawn tattoos. In choosing who to make his second command at the Department of Torturing Refugees, Peter Dutton wasted no time in appointing the only man next to whom he looked like less of a monster, Michael Pizzullo. A key architect and staunch defender of Australia's policy of sending asylum seekers to PNG and Nauru, Pizzullo has often attacked the ABC for daring to highlight human rights abuses in offshore detention centres. Well, it turns out it's a good day for judging someone for what they believe in, because Pizzullo has turned out to be so bad even conservatives now hate him. His career has effectively come to an end after a joint investigation by 60 Minutes, City Morning Herald and The Age. Michael Pizzullo says one thing, but he acts very differently. How do we know this? Well, we've been leaked hundreds of encrypted messages he sent to a Liberal Party power broker. Tonight, we take you inside Pizzullo's secret attempts to influence government. Those attempts include pushing to ensure that Peter Dutton got and kept the Home Affairs Minister job, right-wing media like Alan Jones was kept on side when they got too critical of his department, and the ABC and others were kept frustrated and even harassed when they asked for the application of Freedom of Information Acts. All this came out in WhatsApp and Signal messages he sent to a Liberal Party power broker, dramatised here by 60 Minutes, as if it's the final scene from The Last of the Mohicans. You need a right-winger in there. I could have turned it into a great story for the government. If Dutton is out, give me Taylor or Tudge. Only issue will then be if Labor sees an opportunity to tack left. Home affairs will become a proxy for strength on national security. It would be hard for Labor to oppose. Perhaps give me defence and home affairs at the same time. Payne is completely ineffectual. Maurice is a problem. It may be too hard for him to dump a woman. If she stays, then she has to stop thinking and acting like a foreign minister light. She looks weak. And get rid of Pine from that silly portfolio role. You can say that he has done his job. I don't wish to interfere, but you won't be surprised to hear that in the event of ScoMo getting up, I would like to see Dutton come back to home affairs. These are just a small few of the thousands of messages the media is reporting on, although none show just how poor his judgement is more than this one. But it didn't stop Pizzullo repeatedly trying to resuscitate the career of fallen Prime Minister and ultra-conservative Tony Abbott. Time to bring Abbott back in? Too hard? Just a reminder that the Public Service Code of Conduct requires bureaucrats to be apolitical. How come it's always the politicians with the most obvious bias who accuse the ABC of being biased? They're like a bad Batman villain insisting on leaving their trademark on their crimes. The reaction to this ongoing story has been swift. The Labour government hasn't sacked Pizzullo, but he has been asked to stand aside from his role, which is basically a precursor to a sacking. And his wife is probably wondering why he sent Liberal Party power broker Scott Briggs more text messages in the last five years than he ever sent her. 
Peter Dutton, unsurprisingly, has come out in defence of the guy who basically ensured he kept his job for so long. I can tell you from my time uh, as minister, Mr Bazzullo served the government uh, faithfully. He served you more faithfully, but still. Dutton then went on to write an op-ed this week praising Tony Abbott, because what is the Liberal Party at this point except a massive taxpayer-funded enterprise dedicated to bringing Tony Abbott back into office, despite the clear wishes of everyone in Australia to never see him again? I'm not even exaggerating. It's a column for the Australian edition of Der Sturmer, The Spectator, in which he literally calls Abbott, quote, builder, soldier, thinker, presumably because the more accurate headline of racist, misogynist, alarmist was already taken in the profile being written about Dutton. So why is the Liberal Party suddenly so keen to win favour with the former Prime Minister and Onion Eater? Our top story to begin with, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott has been nominated to the board of the Fox Corporation. Meanwhile, Michael Pizzullo may feel like he's fallen from grace, but he needn't worry. There's always a job commentating on Sky News awaiting him, given that they're the only ones defending him right now. Here's Andrew Bolt, whose biography will probably be called Chauvinist Supremacist Extremist. Now I've got to say that Pizzullo's political judgments were pretty good. I mean, he told Briggs, for instance, that Senator Rhys Payne was completely ineffectual as defence minister. Tick, tick. And he almost had a heart attack, he said, when former Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, a real lightweight, was considering a tilt to become Prime Minister. And here's foreign editor for the Australian Greg Sheridan, whose biography will definitely be titled Wanky, Manky and Cranky. Well, Andrew, a couple of very important things to note here. Uh, so I, I haven't read all the texts and I don't know exactly what they disclose, but... Maybe stop there. If you haven't read them and don't know what they say, then you don't need to say anything else. But since when has ignorance stopped him? There's plainly been a concerted campaign to get Pizzullo for some time. Uh, he plainly has very powerful enemies. According to the story, many of these text messages were on the encrypted service of... Uh, of um, of, uh, you know, uh, WhatsApp and also, I think, Signal. And uh, I thought it was pretty hard to decrypt Signal. So somebody very powerful with very good technology is out to get Pizzullo. That ought to tell you something. The other thing is that, uh, you know, these texts, I don't know what's in them, so they may, they may justify Pizzullo going. But this will be a tragedy if Pizzullo goes in many ways because he gets more done before morning tea than the rest of the public service gets done in a year. So there we go. There's a conspiracy against the man whose job it was to stop conspiracies from happening, but he was too busy creating his own conspiracies to pay attention to others. And he gets a lot done. Unfortunately, most of that is ruining the careers of people he doesn't like and helping those he does. Still, Greg Sheridan is right. You can't fault him for lack of efficiency. Being a crap public servant who failed the most essential aspects of the job, attacking journalistic freedom, compromising the basic human rights of refugees, and like all old men in the Liberal Party, having a fetishistic obsession with Tony Abbott, but definitely efficient. Bigoted Brown's news now. Many analysts and learned scholars will argue as to what constitutes the greatest threat to Western civilization. For some, it's neoliberalism, perhaps the rise of monopolies and runaway capitalism. Others see the influence of malign foreign powers like China and Russia. Then there are those who worry about more abstract threats like being too woke or, or not being woke enough. Maybe it's diversity or fragmenting nuclear families. The list is endless. 
And they're all wrong. Because the biggest threat to Western civilization is the same as the biggest threat to Eastern civilizations. Right-wing Desi politicians. Politics in the US and UK has suddenly been plagued by South Asians deciding the only way to avenge all the indignities mummy and daddy put on them is by getting into politics and changing the rules to prevent future generations of South Asian kids being born in foreign countries because their mummies and daddies were blocked access. In the US, the latest iteration of Bobby Jindal is the first Indian man with an afro, Vivek Ramaswamy, who decided to out-bigot the other bigots in the Republican Party by promising to end birthright citizenship. I favor ending birthright citizenship for the kids of illegal immigrants in this country. Now the left will howl about the Constitution and the 14th Amendment. It's not just the left howling about the Constitution and the 14th Amendment, it's also anyone able to connect dots. Like this MSNBC reporter trying to show Vivek how lines work. You've talked about your mother's experience with the citizenship test. You've also talked about having something similar for folks who graduate high school in order to vote, having a, a civics test similar to what um, your, your mother took. You've lately been talking on the campaign trail more about your mother than your father, and, and some folks have been asking questions, yeah. and I just want to be super clear. Did your father also take the citizenship test, and is your father a citizen? He did not, and that's a choice that he has made for familial reasons, but my mother did. And I think that every immigrant who comes to this country in order to become a full voting citizen has to do the same. And I believe in being consistent about my policies where... So your father is not a citizen of the United States? He's not. Okay. And your mother, when did your mom take the citizenship test? Was it before or after you were born? After I was born. Now, unless you're Vivek Ramaswamy or anyone in the Republican Party, that means Vivek benefited from birthright citizenship. He became a citizen simply because he was born there, while neither of his parents were citizens at the time and one of them still isn't. You know, the thing he wants to end? Well, if that wasn't enough of an example of a South Asian decent right-wing politician with a poor grasp of the word hypocrisy, then let's turn to the most reliable example of a committed bigot, UK's Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. Suella Braverman's parents are of Indian descent, although her mother moved to the UK from Mauritius and her father from Kenya. So, you know, Desis, who themselves migrated elsewhere before then migrating to the UK. And their daughter grew up to become Home Secretary under a Prime Minister who himself is of South Asian descent with parents who came from Kenya and Tanzania. In both their stories, then, is the success of migration and multiculturalism. Which is why, of course, Suella Braverman hates both migration and multiculturalism. She came up with the failed plan to send refugees to Rwanda, once described, quote, almost all British Pakistanis as being grooming gangs, linked migrants coming on boats to drug dealing and prostitution, and because none of that sent a clear enough signal that she's basically Tony Abbott with melanin, here she is this week speaking at a US-based right-wing think tank on why multiculturalism is failing. Multiculturalism makes no demands of the incomer to integrate. It has failed because it allowed people to come to our society and live parallel lives in it. We are living with the consequence of that failure today. You can see it play out in the streets all over Europe, from Malmo to Paris, Brussels to Leicester. I mean, according to her, then she should go back to India because she's ruining the United Kingdom with her multicultural existence. Also, all the places she described, last I checked, weren't on fire and in a massive civil war. 
For every story about a gang of migrants in the news, there's a thousand stories of immigrants setting up bakeries and teaching in schools and, yes, getting into politics long enough to turn full bigot that never seemed to get reported on. Then, because that wasn't enough, she went full Suella Deville by attacking the Refugee Convention. In the 1951 UN Refugee Convention. It's a treaty born out of the horrors of World War II, signed by post-war governments, including Winston Churchill's, and designed to stop refugees being returned to countries where their lives or freedoms would be under threat. It defines a refugee as anyone with a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. But Suella Bravman said this was a world bound by outdated legal models, that the treaty was in need of reform. As case law has developed, what we have seen in practice is an interpretive shift away from persecution in favour of something more akin to a definition of discrimination. But we will not be able to sustain an asylum system if, in effect, simply being gay or a woman or fearful of discrimination in your country of origin is sufficient to qualify for protection. Except the Refugee Convention doesn't offer that protection to anyone for just being gay or a woman. So she's talking about something that isn't a thing. Now, it's true that some people are prosecuted for their sexualities in many countries. But out of all of the refugee applications currently in British courts, only 2% are from people seeking asylum on that basis. And that doesn't mean all of them will get it, as they need to provide further evidence of being personally targeted to justify a case. All of which means, much like everything else she says, there's no truth to it. But it'll go well with the same Nigel Farage-loving British buffoons who think immigrants are out to get them, when in reality, their only true enemy is dental hygiene. Well, just how bad is the refugee crisis in the UK then? Here's the BBC. In the last 10 days, 11,000 migrants have arrived on the small Italian island of Lampedusa. On the southern border of the United States, 9,000 are crossing every day. The United States immigration courts currently have a backlog of 2.6 million cases, of which 1.2 million were added since October. In context, which is what we do here, the 23,000 people that crossed the channel this year is modest, behind the trend that was set last year and far behind the numbers arriving in southern Europe. So not so bad then. And what about the Refugee Convention, the one Winston Churchill was an advocate for, but somehow his biggest fans tend to forget that. It created in international law a minimum standard for the treatment of refugees and it stipulated that refugees cannot be penalised for breaching immigration rules while fleeing. Almost 150 countries have signed up to that convention and it is still considered the cornerstone of the international asylum system. Let's speak then to Dr Shelvin. He's an immigration barrister and adjunct professor at Southampton Law School. Good to see you again. Do you accept the Home Secretary's broad premise that refugee, the Refugee Convention is out of date and now being misused? Well, I, I think, uh, fearing uh, as an immigration lawyer I was and all the rhetoric prior to her speech, I was expecting rivers of blood, but what I got was rivers of mud. That Rivers of Blood reference, by the way, is an infamous quote by British politician and most likely candidate for ghost-possessing Suella Braverman's body, Enoch Powell. 
He was claiming in 1968 that multiculturalism and migration would destroy the English way of life, proving that none of these bigoted ideas are new, yet no one ever notices how their dire predictions don't quite come to pass, which is why the same nonsense gets repeated every decade. In fact, the perfect rebuttal to Suella Braverman then came on a TV show in 1971 from English comedian and writer Sir Jonathan Miller, debating Enoch Powell, who we hear first. Nobody seriously imagines that if two-fifths of Birmingham consists of a first generation of descendants born here, of people from the West Indies, uh, from Africa and from Asia, there will not be a profound difference between that part of a population and the rest. I think there may be a difference. In fact, there certainly will be a difference. Whether that difference is enough to promote anxiety unless someone declares you think nobody would notice? Uh, no, I think they'll notice, certainly. The question about this is whether they will notice with fear and horror unless someone announces to them that fear and horror are an appropriate response to such a fact. I see. And um, you, you think that human nature is such that unless somebody referred to this, nobody would notice that their own native cities were transformed that the white population was moving out and a different population was no, moving I didn't say in. That. That well, you think th then that it would be noticed, but that it would not be merely be tolerated, but would be taken as a desirable or acceptable development. No, I didn't say that either. Well, that is what you have to say. <laughs> you, that is what no. you have to say. If this is not to be a problem. No. You're simply putting words which you would find convenient in my mouth. What I said was that I didn't say that there would be no difficulties. Difficulties are in the nature of human coexistence. What I said was that the differences that there would be are not necessarily the differences which would excite fear and horror unless someone stands up and says that fear and horror are an appropriate response. Someone invested with the authority of public office. Right. When you do that, the charisma of your office and the charisma of your role as a politician will often convince people that fear and horror are an appropriate response if that is what is being told them. It's what philosophers call a performative utterance. No doubt you're familiar with it. And, 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 now, and let, me, let me go on. No, you're not to go on because I'm going to tell you that if you believe that, you will believe anything. It is stark nonsense to say that if I had never been born, the same dangers and problems would have existed in this country. No, I didn't say that either. Well, <laughs> you did indeed. No, I did not. I did not say I've that... I've made it easier no, for no, you. No, no, you haven't at all. I did not say that the same dangers would not exist. I did not say that, that, that ethnic frictions don't exist between groups that are drawn from different uh, areas and from, that have different racial origins. Social cooperation is a hard and a difficult thing. I feel that you would have done your duty as a politician, as an ethical politician, much more productively if instead of exciting the notion of future strife, you had encouraged the notion of future cooperation on the basis of understanding. That's it for this week's edition of News Weekly. Like I said up top, I'm thinking of doing a live show in Melbourne, most likely at the Comedy Republic, either in December or January. So if you would be there, if you would like to come, if you think you'd be able to make it, drop me a line. Send me an email at samishah at gmail.com. That's S-M-I-S-H-A-H -H at gmail.com. Just so I know what kind of numbers I might hope to attract at the live show because I think it would be cool to do this once and see if it works. Otherwise, if nothing else, please go over to iTunes 
iTunes, leave a comment, leave a five-star rating. That always helps with the whole algorithm. And if you don't want to do any of that, just stick around and I'll see you right back here next week on News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. Thank you.